Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 5. We're going to try to cover a lot of verses, 12 to 28, so I need to really speak fast. The name of our lesson today, lesson number 14, is Evangelism Explosion. Satan's use of persecution in the arrest of Peter and John and the former lame man by the members of the Sanhedrin Council had not worked to silence either the apostles or the church. We saw that in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. In fact, the threats of the religious rulers had not only succeeded in empowering and emboldening all of the believers and the apostles more than before. It had succeeded in emboldening them. So they spoke out even more for Jesus. So the evil one temporarily put on another disguise in order to attempt to hinder the work of the church. You know, he hated Jesus. Obviously, he also hates his church, Jesus' spiritual body on earth. So he went from the roaring lion trying to use the powerful high court of Israel to the deceiving serpent using the lie, the deception of Ananias and Sapphira. He changed costumes there, didn't he? But the Lord nipped that sinister deed right in the bud, didn't he? He came and he nipped that in the bud in a very shocking way because the deceptive couple was taken abruptly into God's presence to repent in front of him face to face, I guess, while their bodies were laid to rest in the ground until the time of the resurrection, which for the church will be at the rapture. And these people, the couple, Ananias and Sapphira, were part of the church. Well, it was definitely, no one can deny this, it was definitely a dramatic display of how seriously God takes the purity of the bride of his beloved son. Cancer, you know, if left to metastasize, would corrupt the church. So the great physician operated quickly, very quickly, to cut it out before it could spread. The consequence on the church of both the threats of the Sanhedrin and the deaths of some of their own, Ananias and Sapphira, was that she was now in possession of three greats. The church was in possession of three greats. She had great power and great grace. You see that in Acts 4, verse 33. And she had great fear. Verses 5 and 11 of chapter 5. She had great power and great grace as a result of persecution. Persecution brought her more grace and more power. She had great fear as a result of God's judgment on the house of God. She had great fear because God had chastened the church. Well, in the remainder of chapter 5, we will see that the great fear of the Lord put into the church as well as the great fear put into those outside of the church who heard what had happened regarding Ananias and Sapphira. And we saw that in verse 11. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. So great fear was also on all the people in Jerusalem and around that heard about what had happened in the church. Well, that caused the believers to be even more effective for Christ, that not only was fear in the church, but fear was in the people outside of the church. Not only did their boldness to speak in Jesus' name increase, 
but more apostolic miracles were performed. We'll see that this morning. There was an explosion of evangelism. There was also an explosion of apostolic miracles. And the result, look at verse 14, the result was that multitudes were being added to the Lord. Multitudes. This is the first time, before we read of thousands, 3,000, 5,000, and then we read of a multitude, this is the first time multitude is pluralized. Multitudes were being added to the Lord. There was an evangelism explosion. That's why I named this lesson Evangelism Explosion. Of course, I'm kind of plagiarizing on that one, aren't I? Yes. All right, well, remember now, the Jewish people were familiar with how God dealt with their ancestors. Who are the people outside of the church? Where is the church right now? There's only one church at this point in time, and it's in Jerusalem. So the people outside of the church are all Jewish, right? They're all Jewish people. And uh, they're very familiar. When they heard about Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead at the feet of Peter, they were familiar with this kind of God because he had direct, uh, he had acted directly and seriously with their ancestors on many occasions, such as, let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And what about the people of Noah's day? And Achan, we talked about him last week. Remember, he's the one who took some loot from Jericho after it fell and hid it in the ground in his tent. And he was, you know, taken out of this world. And then there was Nadab and Abihu when the tabernacle was first established and they offered a false fire and they were taken abruptly out of this world. And Uzzah, poor Uzzah, who went to study the Ark of the Covenant, he was immediately taken out of the world. So word about the instant deaths of the couple at the feet of Peter was really further evidence that the followers of this new sect, the sect of the Nazarene, they're not calling the followers of Jesus, Christians yet. They're calling this a sect of the Nazarene. So this is really further evidence that the God of this sect was the same all-powerful and all-knowing Jehovah God of the Old Testament scriptures. The God who the Jewish people knew hates pride and hates hypocrisy and lies and deception and disobedience. So the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira was really proof that the God of the Christians, or the God of you know, this new sect of the Nazarene, was the same God of the Old Testament. Following the first two attacks of Satan against the church, one in the form of physical persecution from outside the church, and the other moral disruption from inside the church, we now come to the fourth description of the daily life of the early church. Remember how we talked about that there is a pattern developing in the book of Acts of that first generation of the church? Well, here we are back to the pattern, and we have another description of the daily life of the church there in Jerusalem, and that's found in verses 12 to 16. This description, we'll see as we read it, tells us that the church's witness was both at the same time alarming people and attracting them. At the same time, she was alarming people, but also attracting them. Outsiders were fearful to join lightly with the followers of Jesus. If they hadn't understood it before, they certainly did now. It was serious 
business to join with that group. I mean, it could really prove to be dangerous to your health, even to your life, <laughs> to join with that group. So the consequence was that only the really serious joined with the church. Only those who first counted the cost and decided that it was well worth persecution of the religious rulers and well worth maybe being chastised by God himself. Only those who really, really wanted Jesus and really wanted what they saw in these church people joined up. Nobody was going to join that church, that sect, with a hypocritical attitude. I mean, those people can spot sin. And that's, that can be serious because you can just drop dead <laughs> if they spot sin in your life. Therefore, only the people the Spirit was drawing were added to the Lord. And this gave the church, you see, if you understand this, this gave the church protection from the infiltration of the world. That was a good thing. The uncommitted and the terrors and the casual weren't joining the church. It was serious business to join the church and accept Christ. And the exciting thing is that we find out multitudes of both men and women were doing just that. They were. We see that in the verses we're going to read. They were deeming it well worth the cost to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, there are three parts to our outline of verses 12 to 28, and they're really very simple. They're based on where the activities in this section take place. So the first section, we're going to look at the activities that went on on the porch. Then we're going to look at what went on on the streets, the streets of Jerusalem, and then we're going to take a look at what happened in and out of prison. And that is the fun part, in and out of prison. All right, so let's begin with on the porch. And for this, I'm going to read verses 12 to 14, but I'm not really going to discuss the first part of verse 12 until we get um, more in the second part of our lesson. Because you'll notice as I read, there's a parenthesis. First of all, I'm going to discuss what's in the parentheses, and I'll tell you when we get there. All right, look at verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Okay, here's where the parentheses starts. And if there wasn't a parentheses, I would just, could just smoothly read down to verse 15. And by the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders wrought among the people, insomuch that they brought forth the sick. All right, but first of all, on the porch, we're going to discuss Luke's parentheses, which says, and they, and that is speaking about the people in the church. By the way, the first time the word church ever appears in the book of Acts is in verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church. We had never read that word before in Acts. All right, so when it goes down to verse 12 and says, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, it's talking about the church. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, now that speaks about people outside the church. Of the rest durst no man join himself to them. Why? Because of the great fear of what went on in that church. But at the same time, they were fearful to join them, but the people magnified them. They're too afraid to join, but they did hold them up in high esteem. 
and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Okay, so I read all of verse 12, but we're just going to discuss the, um, the latter part of that verse. I'll talk about the signs and wonders of the apostles later on. For now, we want to discuss the parentheses. And in that parentheses, what Luke, under the Holy Spirit, does is give us the responses of three groups of people to the great fear that came upon them as a result of God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. He really used that judgment of those two people in good ways. And the three groups that responded with great fear are number one, the church, then those outside the church, and then those who were added to the church. This is significant because it definitely teaches us that having the fear of God, reverential fear of God, is a good thing. That is a positive, good thing all around. The first group of people mentioned in this parenthesis is the church. And guess what? We find that rather than them all scattering back to their respective homes and forgetting about ever meeting together again, you know, <laughs> because after what had happened, two of our members dropped dead right in front of Peter? That's a scary business. I think I'm just going to go home and forget about this church thing. Instead of doing that, the great fear of God in their lives kept them together, even probably more united than before, because they all kind of purged themselves. We'll talk about that in a minute. But how do I, you know, Satan had come in and tried to cause division and discord, didn't he, with uh, deception and the temptation to spiritual pride. But the Lord God used that. He, he took that evil and he turned it to good. He made sure that because of that, he cut out that cancer and he made sure that his people, this is important at the beginning of his church, that he keep his people unified. And he did. How do we know that they were still unified and probably even in a stronger unity? Well, because it says so in verse 12. It says they're, they're still described as being in one accord. And furthermore, and this is really wonderful, where were they all meeting with one accord? Where are they meeting, the church, on a daily basis? They're meeting in the very place of their first persecution. Remember when Peter and John had been arrested by the Sadducees because they didn't like them teaching about the resurrection? They didn't believe in resurrection. They, didn't, they hated that they were speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. And so they had come and arrested. They grabbed Peter and John and the lame man. And uh, they were on Solomon's porch. The man had been healed at the beautiful gate, but then he leaped and danced all the way over to Solomon's porch so that, that you know, they had a big crowd gathered there and Peter preached and in the middle of his sermon. That's when they were arrested by the Sadducees. So now, you see, we find out that even though the high council of Israel, that supreme court of Israel, had threatened the entire church through Peter and John to neither speak nor teach in the name of Jesus, which they would never say, but they forbid them to ever speak or teach, yet here they all are gathering on a daily basis in the very public place of Solomon's porch, right there in the temple, out in the open, doing exactly what the council had threatened them not to do. Isn't that wonderful? 
I mean, these guys are like, have you ever tried to dump a volleyball in a swimming pool? You know, they just keep bouncing back up. <laughs> you just can't keep them down. And they, and they had told the council they wouldn't obey them, didn't they? So we ought, we ought to obey a God rather than you guys, so we're not going to listen to you. And they didn't, and the whole church didn't, even under threat of, you know, we can do to you what we did to your master, we can kill you. They didn't care. They're speaking and teaching about the very one they didn't want them to speak and teach about, Jesus. You see, when the fear of God fills the heart, there is no room for the fear of man. Amen. We need to remember that today, don't we, in our dangerous, perilous world. When the fear of God, when you're more fearful of the living God, you don't have any room to be fear of, fearful of man. What can man do to us anyway? And they, they can maybe harm the body, but they sure can't touch the soul. Their great fear of God made them fearless of man. Well, Solomon's porch, I don't know if I've told you this before, but it was a massive portico that had been built out on the eastern side of the temple complex, out over, kind of hanging over where the Kidron Valley sloped down. And it was hanging on, uh, you know, set on colonnades. And it had the view, if you were on Solomon's porch, you had a view of the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane over there, the Kidron Valley. It was a beautiful view. It was so spacious that it could hold hundreds and even thousands of people. So it was, now the church is in the thousands, well into the thousands, isn't it? And um, they had long passed the place where they could still scrunch together in the upper room. Now, they managed to get 120 people in that upper room, but actually on the day of the church's birth, she passed where she, they could meet in the upper room. I mean, 3,000 devout Jews were added to the church on her birthday, the day of Pentecost. You know you couldn't get 3,120 people in the upper room. So now they're meeting at Solomon's porch, the very first place of their persecution. And you can't help but love these people, right? So bold. So the apostles and the other believers are out in the open, out in the open, right under the noses and the listening ears of who? All those religious rulers, the priests and the Sadducees and all the other ones. They're boldly united in doing the work of the Lord and proclaiming his name. So this is the response of the church to the great fear put upon her because of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, in verse 13, we have the response of another group of people, which would have consisted, as I said, of the Jewish people outside the church. This would include those described in verse 11 who had great fear when they had heard what had happened in the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And here they are described as the rest who durst not join the church but did magnify them. They didn't dare join with them because it was a scary thing, but they did hold them in high esteem. Um, and their leaders they held in high esteem. They had the church people up on a pedestal. They magnified them. Now remember, we said that the fear of God in people, both inside and outside of the church, is a good thing. Why? Well, to begin with, you can't even have knowledge without the fear of God. What's it say in Proverbs 1.7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can't even have the first little mustard seed of real knowledge or wisdom apart from having the fear of the true and living God. The fear of God is mentioned some 170 times in the Old Testament, just in the Old Testament, 
scriptures. And the indictment against unbelievers, written by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.18, is, here's the indictment against the whole world of unsaved people. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, as God himself had purged the church of the deceitfulness that tried to creep in with Ananias and Sapphira, he had purged the church. God had. The Lord had. Well, the individual Christians, and you can imagine you would do the same thing. After that, they all seriously did a self-examination of their own hearts. And they, they, they honestly and fearfully, with you know, fear and trembling, examined themselves. They assessed their own lives to see if there was any deceit within them or any temptation to spiritual pride within them. And the result was, you know, God purged the church, and then the individual Christians purged themselves. Wouldn't you do that if a couple in your church fell dead right before your pastor? <laughs> I, I would do a serious examination of myself. Um, so the result was a healthy and a holy and a unified church. And the people outside the church noticed. Well, where was the church meeting? Out in the public. You know, the temple of all places so everybody around could watch them. Maybe that's what we should do so the world sees what we're doing inside these buildings, right? Maybe we should be out in the tents or something, out in the public square so they can see us and, and hold us in high esteem. Maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. But they sure did with the early church. Uh, they observed the Christians as they worshipped God. And they saw a real effervescence, vibrancy about them that they didn't have. When they went to the temple, it was mundane, ritual, routine. You know, we, don't, we have to do this every day, da, da, da. But these people really meant it. They were really worshiping God. And they were loving one another. They were sharing with one another their possessions. They had such spiritual unity. You couldn't help but magnify them and hold them in high esteem. The outsiders definitely saw and they definitely heard something new, something wonderful, something so pure that they held up those people in high esteem. Now, people were not going to enter lightly into the presence of these people. They weren't going to enter in with them presumptuously. Uh, it was not a casual thing to join in with this group, but it was so wonderful a lot of them were wanting to, and a lot of them therefore did. You get it? But joining with the church of Jesus Christ uh, was a serious, they understood it was a serious commitment, one that could mean the chastening of God and the persecution of the Jewish religious leaders. The fear of God on the people outside of the early church provided protection of that early church from, as I said before, from being infiltrated with the world and with the uncommitted. You see, where there is no price to belonging, a lot of baggage gets added. Now, many people within Christendom to today, and I'm going to basically be talking about American Christendom, all right? Because there's a lot of wonderful things going on in other worlds where the church is being persecuted. And I, I am sure there's a lot of vibrant, you know, Christians and they're being persecuted even with their lives. Um, but I, I, I don't 
I'm going to just stick with America, and I'm going to call it Christendom because there's a lot of people that name the name of Jesus who are only pr professing Christians. You all know that, right? But many people within Christendom today would say, well, that was certainly not a very seeker-friendly church, you know, that put the fear of God in all those peoples. Why would it be a good thing to alarm and frighten outsiders from coming on into the church? Why would that be a good thing? Shouldn't the church want to make the lost feel comfortable to come on in and join with us? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, we want to bring them in. Just as they are, right? We have a song about that. Just as they are. We want to bring them in. But we sure don't want to make them feel comfortable. I mean, if people, if the lost are coming into your church and they're feeling comfortable, something is wrong. We want to love them, yes. We love them, but what do we not love? Sin. We don't love their sin. And if unsaved people feel comfortable in our churches, they must not be hearing about the holiness, the absolute holiness of God. And they must not be hearing about his judgment on sin. They must not be hearing that they all are, as, as we are too, we're all sinners. We all fall far short of the glory of God. We're all in need of a Savior because if not, we stand condemned already. We're born condemned. John 3.18, because we're born with the Adamic sin nature. The philosophy of ministry that is so very prevalent today in America is robbing the church of the only thing that makes her distinctive, which is our reflection of the purity and the holiness of God. There are a great many churches, I am afraid, and I have been to many from coast to coast. Visited a lot of churches, and nowadays you can just go on the internet and you can watch church services and you can hear sermons. But there are a great many churches that have settled into a comfortable existence that has very little that is distinctive about it. A lot of it looks just like what's going on out in the world. But in the early church, there was megaphobia. That's the Greek for great fear that existed not only in the Christians, but in those outside the church who had heard about the dealings of God in the church. Where, oh where, does that kind of fear exist today? Either in our churches or among the lost. Where are those who look at Christians and esteem us highly? Does the world fear the Lord because of his work in and through us? No, most of the world is more afraid of the God, small g, of the Islamic terrorists than they are fearful of the true and living God, our God, the one and only God. But even more soberly to ask about the outside world is to ask the questions, does the church fear God? Is there a trembling in the church 
or is it crowded with indifferent, careless, or even worse, sinful people who come in laden with things that have corrupted and smeared their lives and they are lazily relying on the grace of God and an easy, unrepentant confession to take care of everything wrong about them, no big deal. Grace of God will cover it. You know, I can just go on living in sin. Just the grace of God will abound more and more. Presumptuously taking for granted the grace of God with unrepentant laziness. Are our churches full of people like that? I hope not your church, but there are many churches in America like that. Where is even the faint trace of holy ground? Where is the fear of God is when the Israelites stood at, stood at the, the base of the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai um, when Moses was about to go up and get the Ten Commandments? And uh, where is the fear of God such as when Elijah called down fire from heaven at Mount Carmel? Where is the amazed marveling of the enemies of Christ for the boldness of his spokesmen? as when Peter and John stood before the you know, Supreme Court of Israel and said, we, better, we have to obey God rather than you. Where is it, and this is one I really would love to see, and I know they're out there and I can't wait to see them come forth, but where are the young God-fearing Davids who stand up to the Goliaths, and here I'm picturing in my mind, because I keep seeing it over and over again on the television, that awful terrorist in his black with only his eyes showing, standing there over the first journalist who he was about to behead. And he looks like a giant because he's got that man on his knees. Doesn't he look like a giant? I think of Goliath. Where are the young Davids at the forefront of our armies saying, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day will the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will smite thee, and I will take your head from thee. Ah. Oh, that gives me chills. I want to see an American army that says, let's go forth in the name of our Lord. Then we would defeat the enemy. Do you know that? That is true. That's true. I heard the other day, and this just got me all excited. I was ready to put on my war, war outfit. <laughs> Get my sword. But do you know that the, the, Isla, the, Islamic, the Muslims, the men, are scared to death of women fighters. You know that one woman pilot, fighter jet pilot from the UAE? If you don't watch the news, you probably should keep up with things. I do because my son and I also do because I want to know what's going on. But anyway, they have one woman pilot, fighter pilot in the, uh, she's an Arab, and the, it, the Islamic terrorists are scared to death of her. Because if she drops a bomb on them from her airplane up in the sky, you know what they believe? <laughs> they believe if you're killed by a woman, you will not get to go to heaven. So come on, ladies. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's keep them from their 72 virgins, okay? 
I got such a kick out of hearing that. Scared to death of us. All right. Oh, let's see. I got into preaching, didn't I? All right. <laughs> I wanted to also ask, where are our prayer meetings that literally shake the buildings? Okay, so we need, don't we, we need to be, I love these prayers. I, I might ask you to make, pray, you know, write some more out because I want to read your prayers. Where are, we need to be, um, as godly women, we need to be praying for the churches of America. That's our only hope. We need, our churches need to be restored to the holiness and to the purity and to the unity and to the great fear of God that caused the early church to literally know an evangelism explosion. I want to see that happen in this country. I do. I want to see a big revival. But you see, the fact is that it is those distinctive characteristics, holiness, unity, fear of God, Purity, those are the characteristics that cause the church to grow. Not the worldliness that so many are attempting to use today to appeal to the loss. Why would that appeal to the loss? It's not any different. It's not distinctive. Well, in verse 14, we read that so many believers were added to the Lord that now it's, a multi it's multitudes plural. The Holy Spirit, you see, was not grieved by sin in the, in the early church. Neither was he quenched by a quiet people who wouldn't dare open their mouths to speak about Jesus. The people were clean channels through which God's power could flow. Therefore, the Spirit could do his convicting and his convincing work unhindered and unhampered. And the result was evangelism explosion. If the church would strive to keep herself pure, the Lord will do the adding. He will do it. Our job is to keep ourselves pure. He'll do the adding. That's real evangelism. All right, let's look at on the streets. What was going on on the streets? For this, we'll read the parentheses. Uh, I mean, outside the parentheses. Start at verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Now go down to verse 15. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There, also, there came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Well, the Holy Spirit begins here by telling us specifically that it was by the hands of the apostles that the signs and wonders were taking place, by the hands of the apostles. You see, the early church was not a miracle-working church. You get that? The early church was not a miracle-working church. However, she did have miracle-working apostles. Now, although they had performed some miracles during the time of the Lord's earthly ministry, we know that because the first time he sent them out on a mission venture in pairs without him, he gave them, them the power and authority to perform miracles. They could even raise the dead, um, cast out demons, uh, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. But we don't have any specifically recorded miracles that they did perform in the Gospels. We know they did some, but they're not recorded for us. 
The only thing really recorded is one time when they tried to cast out a demon from a young boy and they failed. Um, but we do have, so far, in the book of Acts, one recorded healing miracle. And what was it? The healing of the man born lame. Now, all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 5, we have miracle explosion. Um, the apostles are performing many miracles. When we read through the uh, Bible, and I'm not going to have time to develop this, but we find that at the beginning of all the major ages or stages of God's overall redemptive plan, there were miracles. Miracles were part of the initiation. They were to demonstrate that the new thing that was happening was of God. The miracles, we've discussed this so many times, but they were always to confirm the message and the messengers. With the completion of the message, which would be the New Testament, the apostolic miracles ceased because there was no more need for them. Something better was there, the apostolic message, more important than the, mess the miracles. They were just to confirm the message. In fact, the apostles all died off, and they were not replaced. The only one who was replaced was the false apostle, Judas Iscariot. And they had a church meeting, and they replaced him with who? Matthias. But when James, the son of thunder, the brother of John, died, and he was the first apostle to be put to death as a martyr's death, when he died, there was no church meeting to replace him. And when the last one died, John, they didn't replace him. They replaced none of the apostles when they died. So guess what? That means there are no apostles in the world today and haven't been since John died. All right? Now, they were the ones gifted by the Lord to perform these miracles so that everybody would know they were, they were um, you know, his messengers. So if you go by a church and it says apostle so-and-so, that is a self-proclaimed apostle, not really an apostle. Um, of the, you know, to be an apostle, you had to have seen Jesus firsthand. And Saul did in the desert. All right, we're not going to go there now, but he did. All right, so in the early days of the church, the apostles were ministering as the Lord himself had ministered. Huge crowds of people were coming not only from Jerusalem, but you notice for the first time outside of Jerusalem, in the cities and communities outside, they're beginning to fulfill the commission. You know, start at Jerusalem, go out to Judea, Samaria, etc. So people are coming from all around Jerusalem. Word is spreading, spreading that God was at work through Jesus's men. You know, the people were upset when Jesus was crucified. They had lost their miracle worker. And now there's excitement in the air again because Jesus is back with us working through his men. And isn't that what the book of Acts is? Jesus continuing his work by his spirit through his church. And so there, his men are doing signs and wonders and healings. People are literally bringing in their sick and their possessed relatives and friends and they're laying them down in the streets of Jerusalem on beds and couches. Beds were rich people's beds and couches were straw mats for the poor. So the rich and the poor are coming and laying down their friends in the streets hoping that just one of the apostles will come by and heal them or at the very least that Peter's shadow would heal them. We'll talk about that in a minute. Doesn't this almost sound like something that we would have read in one of the gospel accounts? 
Doesn't it sound just like when Jesus was, you know, the crowds were pressing around him and everybody was being healed and there was so much excitement? It sounds just like Jesus is back. And really, the truth is, he was, except multiplied times 12. Remember he said that they would do greater works? Remember he said that except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die to buy it alone, but if it, you know, die, it will bring forth much fruit. That's exactly what's happening here. And this is really the result of the prayer of the church that shook the building when they prayed in Acts 4.30 that Jesus, look at that, Acts 4.30, that Jesus would stretch forth his hand to heal. This is an answer to their prayer. Maybe that's why the apostles weren't performing a lot of miracles until the church prayed that Jesus would stretch forth his hand and use their hands, and now, wow, all kinds of people. It says every single person was healed. Um, and Peter is kind of the man of the hour right now, isn't he? You know, oh, just if Peter's shadow could just pass over us, they, they'll be healed or whatever. Um, he's the man of the hour because it was his hand that reached down to lift up that lame man, right? And the next minute he was leaping. It was Peter who was giving all the sermons where people were coming in, in groves to the Lord. It was um, at Peter's feet that Ananias and Sapphira both fell dead. So it was evident that the Lord was working mightily through the apostle Peter. You know, Peter had plunged deeper than any of the other apostles, true apostles, when he denied the Lord three times. But he genuinely repented, and the Lord used him, apparently, more than any of the other apostles. Isn't that true? Do you know the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter is the main guy? And the last chapters from 13 to 28, who's the main guy? Paul. Now, can you think of anyone who persecuted the Lord more than the Apostle Paul? When he was on the road to Damascus, the Lord from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You see, when the world persecutes the church, who are they really persecuting? Jesus. He, he was wrecking havoc on the church. He was the, he, when he said he was the chief of sinners, he really was. <laughs> but look how mightily the Lord used him. So don't ever think that you're beyond the Lord using you. Peter and Paul, chief of sinners, and wow, the Lord really used him. What is this shadow thing all about? Well, the people of the Near East had the belief, and I think many still do today, that a man's shadow carried his influence. Parents would actually take their small children to places where they could sit in the shadows of great men. On the other hand, parents would snatch their children away from someone passing by who was evil or who they didn't like because they didn't want that person's shadow overcasting their child. It was a superstitious thing, like touching the hem of the garment of someone famous was also thought to gain their influence or their healing. Now, one woman's faith had actually caused her to be healed that way, right? By Jesus, when she touched, she believed in her heart. If she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed, and she was so I don't know if anybody was healed by Peter's passing shadow. Possibly. The scripture doesn't tell us. But I know that woman was healed by her faith in the, touching the garment. 
Uh, but it certainly does tell us one thing. It tells us how magnified Peter and the other apostles were in the eyes of the growing masses of people. It does reflect the fact that the people believed G uh, Peter had divine power, and he did. But I am sure he made it clear, as he did after the healing of the lame man, that it wasn't by his holiness or his power that he was healing people. It was by Christ's power and his holiness, Christ working through him. Well, the Jewish religious leaders had always, remember, they had always required a sign. No matter how many miracles Jesus performed, what did they always want? One more. And even when he had given them that ultimate one, the sign of his resurrection, um, <clears throat> they still, you know, weren't satisfied when he did resurrect from the, the dead. Now, because of his resurrection, the Jews were receiving even more signs through Jesus' spiritual body on earth. So what this tells us is that it was still not too late for them to admit their error. All it would take would be for that big group of self-righteous mucky mucks to say, we're sorry, we made a mistake, we repent, and it wasn't too late. They could be saved. They could admit their mistake and turn to Jesus in faith. The general public was coming to Christ in groves. Thousands are coming to Jesus. So it wouldn't have been too late for Israel. But you know, a nation always gets judged based on their leadership. Sad, isn't it? I'm reading Killing Patton right now. And I knew how bad Hitler was. Everybody knows how evil Hitler was. He killed six million Jewish people and even Christians. But do you know Joseph Stalin was... 10 times, 50 times as satanic as Hitler, he killed 50 to 60 million people. Oh. Anyway, Jesus was, you know, uh, people were coming to him. So what about the nation's leaders? All it would take, they're seeing all these signs and wonders and miracles happening. What was their response to all these apostolic miracles? <clears throat> Well, we find out in our next se section, which is in and out of prison, and sadly, you already know the answer. Their response was not good. Let's look at it. Verse 17. <clears throat> when the high priest, and that would be Caiaphas, rose up. And that doesn't mean he stood up. It meant he rose up in anger. He was mad. Well, then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, he always had, always had a little bunch of brown-nosed cronies following him everywhere he went. And who were they? the sect of the Sadducees, they were filled with the Holy Spirit? No. <laughs> they were filled with indignation. Do you know what that word is in the Greek? Envy. They were filled with angry envy and laid their hands on the apostles. That doesn't mean they tried to heal them. They snatched them and <laughs> grabbed them put them in bonds, put them in the common prison, which was their prison. The Jews had a prison. This wasn't a Roman prison. But, but, the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. That would be all 12 apostles. The angel brought them forth and said, go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. You know what the gospel is? It's all the words of this life. You want to really have life? Have Jesus. He is life. He is 
the way, the truth, and the life. He's eternal life. Speak all the words of life. Speak to the people. Go back, stand in the temple, and speak to the people the words of life. I love that. And did they obey? Yeah, verse 21. And when they, that would be the 12 apostles, heard that, they entered into the temple. I told you, like a volleyball, you just can't keep it underwater. Uh, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest. Now here, here he is. You know, he gets up in the morning and he puts on his big fancy robe and he, and he combs his long beard. You know, has no idea what went on during the night. <laughs> and so the high priest gets up and they that were with him, there's his little buddies, and they called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel. I mean, this is going to be a serious meeting. They're calling together all the elders too. It's a big meeting. And sent to the prison to have them, the, you know, the 12 apostles brought. Here's another but. <laughs> but when the officers, that would be the temple guard, came to the prison and found them not in the prison, they returned. They returned to the high priest and his cronies and said, the prison truly found we shut with all safety. In other words, prison was shut up tight, locked in everything. All the bars were there. And the keepers standing without before the doors. In other words, the, the prison guards were at attention, standing there alert and awake right outside the prison doors. And yet, what did they say? But when we had opened, we found no man within. <laughs> I still laugh when I read that. I love it. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. I'll tell you what that means. That's a weird little phrase, but I'll explain it to you. Verse 25, then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple. Remember the angel said, stand, don't sit. That's exactly what they're doing. They're standing in the temple and teaching the people. Oh, then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people. Who feared the people? The ones who were going to arrest the apostles again feared the people, lest they should be stoned. I mean, they were afraid of the people. The apostles were very popular. They had a lot of people, a lot of people on their side, so to speak. So they go back and they rearrest them. And then, verse 27, they brought them forth, you know, set them before the council, and the high priest asked them a question, saying, Did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Notice they won't say the name of Jesus still in this name. We told you you shouldn't teach in this name. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What doctrine is it that the Sadducees hate that they're teaching? The doctrine of resurrection. And then he says, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, he won't say Jesus' name, but he's trying to say, you're trying to bring his blood on us like we did it, you know? <laughs> very, very interesting. Well, there are three reasons that the high priest Caiaphas and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. You know, it's really interesting. The primary enemies of Jesus in the Gospels during his earthly ministry were the Pharisees. But in the book of Acts, you know who the primary enemies of the church are? The Sadducees. And why is that? The Pharisees did believe in resurrection. The Sadducees did not. So the Pharisees are pretty much quiet, other than Saul initially. He was a Pharisee, Paul. But anyway, so um, 
There's primarily three reasons that they arrest all 12 of the apostles this time, and they throw them into the common prison. Number one, these men had not obeyed the council's command given through Peter and John to stop speaking and teaching about Jesus. Number two, they were teaching the doctrine of the resurrection, and the Sadducees, it tells us in Acts 23, 8, did not believe in resurrection, nor did they believe in angels. You're not going into labor, are you? Okay, good. <laughs> we have a midwife in here? Um, and three, the, the third reason they arrested these apostles is because of their audacity. I mean, these untrained Galilean nobodies were able to speak so authoritatively and to um, perform such obviously mighty miracles that everybody in the city who was sick was being healed. I mean, what audacity to go around healing everybody. That Caiaphas and his cronies are jealous. They are filled with envy. The, 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 these Galileans, this sect of the Nazarene, are, they're gaining too much traction. They're gaining too much attention, and too many people are coming to believe in Jesus. And who had they been envious before of? Jesus. And so now it's almost like they're admitting his resurrection because they're still jealous of him. They're jealous of him doing his work through his church. Now their three indictments are just, they hold no water at all. Because the first one, they say that they didn't obey their command, you know, to not speak or teach. Well, they had already told them we wouldn't obey you. And there was nothing they could do about it. They said, well, you judge. Should we obey you or should we obey God? And they had to release them. The second one, um, you can't arrest people for believing a doctrine different from yours. If they could, they would have had to arrest all the Pharisees because they also believed in resurrection. And probably 90% of the Jewish people believed in resurrection. So that doesn't hold any water. And you certainly can't arrest somebody because you're jealous of them. You see? And, but to them, you know, enough was enough. They'd had it. They'd had it. And plus, you know, all these people in the city, what if the Romans get upset and say, can't you guys control things here? If the Romans got upset with all these masses of people lying in this, so they might replace the Sanhedrin Council. They might replace their, and they would lose their positions of power and prestige. So they'd had enough, you know. They, they not only um, had completely, the apostles had completely ignored their threats, but now there were multitudes gathering in the temple right at the very place where they had arrested them. And uh, let me skip some things because I'm running out of time. But anyway, when they come to arrest the apostles the first time, when they're there in Solomon's porch, the apostles go. They don't resist arrest. They had learned that from Jesus, right? So they just go with them. They know they can trust God, that he has a purpose for this arrest. And so they're thrown in the, in the prison. And then during the night, we know an angel. And can't, you know, she just love it. The other thing the Sadducees didn't believe in was angels. And so the Lord, I mean, he could have sent an earthquake or he could have just opened the prison doors any way he wanted to, but he specifically sent an angel <laughs> to let these men out. And, uh, and he did. He opens up the doors for them. They didn't walk right through the doors. The angel opened the doors, the prison doors, and uh, he let all 12 men. How did 12 men get past those guards? One of two things. Either the angel made them invisible or he put the guards in some kind of a stupor. They didn't fall asleep. I mean, they, you know, they can't be bribed to say they fell asleep. But somehow or another, he got 12 apostles out. He turned around, locked the doors back up. <laughs> it's just hilarious. And he makes sure that these guys know that they're not being released so that they can go hide in the cave somewhere. They wouldn't have done that anyway. But he tells them, 
you're being released so you can go back, stand in the temple, and speak all the words of life. All right, well, what was the reaction of the apostles to that miracle? I think it's kind of amazing that they're, that they're not even shocked. They just take it in stride. Wouldn't you be a little bit shocked if you're in prison and an angel shows up and lets you out? I would. I mean, I'd probably fall down and faint. But they just take it in stride. You see, now they're so used to the miraculous that, okay. <laughs> and maybe they recognized the angel. Maybe he was one of the two that had come at the time of the Lord's ascension and said, why do you men of Galilee stand there gazing up to them? I, you know, I don't know. I'm just having fun. But they just take it in stride, and they go, and they obey. They obey the angel because they know he's a messenger from the resurrected Lord. So what do they do? They go right back to the temple, and they start preaching to the people. What do you think they told the people that morning, besides all the words of life? They told them about their escape by an angel during the night. Guess what happened? An angel came, let us out. And all the people knew they had been arrested. Nothing else would explain it. And then they also taught about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, the two things that the Sadducees get so inflamed about. Don't tell me the Lord doesn't have a sense of humor. I mean, it's just all over this place. You can't help but see it. Well, <clears throat> so the high priest and his cronies, they get up in the morning, they go to their council session, you know, not having a clue that anything happened during the night, and they send for their prisoners to be brought before them. <laughs> and then verse 22 starts with a but, which tells us something happened right away. When the officers of the temple guard get to the prison, they found something truly shocking. They found that the prison was locked up tight, the guards, the keepers, were still standing there, not having a clue that, that anything had happened. But when they open the prison and look inside, guess what? The birds had flown from the coop. <laughs> and they go back to the Sanhedrin and they say, we found no man within. What does that remind you of? You can't help but think of the other shocked guards of an empty tomb, who also went running to the Sadducees and to Caiaphas and said, you know what? We saw one with the countenance like lightning and raiment white as snow, and the, and the tomb is empty. And now here again, oh no, it's like, can we never get rid of this? First of all, it was an empty tomb, and now it's an empty prison, except this time 12. How did they get out of there? You know those guys had to think. It must have been an angel. or a, It had to be a miracle, right? And they couldn't bribe anybody this time. That just wouldn't work. So uh, they're wondering among themselves. And in verse 24, it says, They doubted of them whereunto this would grow. That does not mean that they doubted the miracles that the apostles were performing. That does not mean that they doubted their miraculous escape from prison. You know what it means? It means that they were beginning to doubt that they could ever put a stop to Christianity. Praise the Lord! For once, they were right! 2,000 years later, and it still continues, doesn't it? So as these men are wondering among themselves, what in the world are we going to do? Suddenly this guy comes bursting in on them and he says in effect, hey, I got good news. It isn't going to be that hard for us after all to find the missing prisoners. <laughs> You're never going to believe this, but guess where they are? They are standing in the temple and they are teaching the people all about that name that you guys don't like, Jesus. And you just have to have a smile on your face when you read that, don't you? 
Oh, all right. It was, so it was a sticky business for the guards to have to go back to the temple because, I mean, Peter and the other guys, they're very popular. And all they would have had to have said, the Sons of Thunder, Simon the Zealot, all they would have had to said is, stand up for us. And there would have been a riot, right? And the people would have picked up stones, and who would they have stoned to death? The ones coming to arrest them. So that was a sticky business. That's why it says they went without violence. I wonder why did the angel, why did the Lord have the angel release them from prison if they were just going to go right back into prison? And the Lord would know that. I think it was to get under the skin of the Sadducees, don't you? <laughs> anyway, um, they go along again peacefully. They, you know, they could trust the Lord. The Lord had gotten them out of prison one time. He could take care of them again. So they go along, and they, um, they stand again, now all 12 of them, before this council, and Caiaphas asks his question. Um, didn't we command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I mean, that's admitting that there is evangelism explosion, right? Filled Jerusalem, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon yourself. Do you know what that last one is? That one is definitely a guilty conscience speaking. You know, these men who thought so much of themselves, really, the truth is that they were guilt-ridden about what they had done with Jesus. They even called the money they paid Judas blood money, which admits that they did it wrong. These are guilt-ridden, jealous, scared men. They're afraid of losing their positions of power and authority. The first irony is that these men had already brought the blood of Jesus upon themselves. They couldn't blame shift this on the disciples. Remember when Pilate was trying to release Jesus, these men had said, what? His blood be upon us and our children. That's the first irony. The second irony of this situation is that the apostles, as we're going to see, Lord willing, next week in his, Peter's message, they had no desire whatsoever to bring the blood of Jesus Christ down upon these men in judgment. They had done that themselves. Rather, you know what the desire of the apostles' hearts was, were? Their desire was to apply the blood of Jesus to the hearts of these men so that they could be saved. That was their desire. All right, I'm sorry I kept you over. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the supreme example of these men who were so obedient so steadfast, so resilient, so confident in your care for them. They knew what we should also know, that you can deliver us from the world's oppression any time that you see fit. Thank you for showing us their determination to obey you rather than men. And teach us better how to live out our faith amidst oppression however it might come to us, and to be joyous and effervescent for Jesus always, always, even in the midst of persecution, because we know that someone, somewhere, is always watching us. Help us to be salt and light this next week, and go with every woman, bring us back safely, for we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.